the Human Factors and Ergonomics Hub, a series of educational podcasts that showcase the connection between human capabilities and good work design. Brought to you by the Human Factors and Ergonomics Society of Australia. This is part two of our podcast series with Professor Michael Reagan, chatting about automated and autonomous vehicles. Professor Reagan is an Emeritus Professor with the University of New South Wales Sydney Research Centre for Integrated Transport Innovation, called R-City. Prior to that, he was the Professor of Human Factors with R-City, and before that, he was the Chief Scientist for Human Factors with the Australian Road Research Board. Mike has a Bachelor of Science degree in Psychology and Human Factors, and around 25 years' experience in transportation, human factors and road safety research and teaching in Australia, France and the US. And I've talked about <clears throat> already the systems that are out there. Um, I realised um, we talked about all of the different levels and um, the systems that are out there that are level one systems and level two where you, you combine um, adaptive cruise control with lane keeping assist and uh, level three where the vehicle drives itself for most of the time but you know it expects you to take back control every now and then. So I suppose what I, I might talk about briefly now is is the future, as, as I see it, based on my understanding of what's going on. But the future of autonomous vehicles is, is really going to be concerned with connectivity. Connectivity is going to be the way of the future, along with the um, parallel development of, of full autonomy in vehicles. And, and the transport system of, of the near future is going to be one in which autonomous vehicles become connected electronically with um, with the entire road system and in fact with the rest of the world and and this again makes it makes for a very interesting um, focus for human factors and ergonomics professionals for reasons I'll, I'll talk about in a moment the the thing about connectivity and I'll explain what I mean by that in a moment is that it provides um, additional data that can be provided to autonomous vehicles to improve their performance and safety. And, and and that connectivity can be achieved in different ways. And so, for example, your listeners may start to hear in the very near future about what we call vehicle-to-vehicle connectivity or communication. And, and this means, for example, you can have two cars approaching an intersection. Each of them is operating autonomously. You know, there are passengers sitting in there, um, no steering wheel. Um, but the vehicles are communicating with each other, and in the future there won't be any traffic lights, uh, traffic signals at an intersection. The vehicles will just know where they are on the approach to the intersection, and they'll work out a way of bypassing each other in very large numbers through that intersection without you even knowing it. They, they, they won't stop. They won't have to stop. They might slow down a bit, but um, you'll just, if you can imagine it in your head, having all of these vehicles autonomously converging on the intersection, talking to each other electronically and um, each vehicle compensating for the uh, movement of the other to get through. And then you can have what, then what we'll have is, we'll also have infrastructure to vehicle communication. We've actually got this at the moment. Um, infrastructure to, to vehicle uh, connectivity means, for example, you can have sensors on the road ahead, which are sensing that there's black ice on the road and uh, that information is sent electronically uh, via a service provider of some sort, uh, just like a mobile phone um, tower, uh, to the vehicle. And so you get a, a warning in your car 
if you're driving a partially automated car, because you're going to have connectivity between partially automated cars as well, to say there's back ice on the road, you know, slow down or take a different route. But if it's an autonomous vehicle, it will just know what it has to do and avoid the black ice. Then you're going to have what's called vehicle to um, infrastructure and connectivity. Um, this actually occurs at the moment um, where if you've got, um, for example, uh, you know, fire engines and ambulances, they can actually send a signal electronically to traffic signals to give them priority so that the, um, the lights change from red to green and they can... Um, they can go through the intersection more quickly because they've got, you know, a, a dangerous um, activity that they're being posed with or, they're, you know, they're going to a fire or they're carrying someone who's critically ill. So that's occurring at the moment, but there'll be lots more of lots more of that. And then um, you can have vehicle to pedestrian or V to P connectivity. So a pedestrian might be, um, might have an iWatch or Apple Watch, um, and all of a sudden, their Apple Watch says car approaching or car, car approaching on left or, or gives them some um, indication that they're in danger because of another vehicle or road user. Um, and then you've got what's called vehicle to anything or V to X, which is really your vehicle uh, connecting to the Internet of Things. So it could be anything. So you, you come home in your autonomous vehicle, it drives you home. And uh, as you get to the driveway, the autonomous vehicle sends the signal to the garage door to open so that your autonomous vehicle can park. Um, you've pre-programmed your car to turn the stove on um, so the food starts cooking, um, all these things. So the car then just becomes connected to, to anything that it can connect with. Um, so that's the future of, of, of transport, basically, um, connectivity. and. Um, and there are all sorts of, you know, implications of that that we could talk about. There's so many things that you've talked about, Mike, that I've really not considered. Really, we're driving a computer. That's right. And what you're alluding to, Sharon, is, um, you know, the need for the community to develop trust in these systems. And we're going to talk about that in the last part of the podcast because these these vehicles you know, themselves operating autonomously and when they're connected to to other uh, things out there, um, they're going to be, be behaving in ways that we've not experienced before. And so trust is going to be very important. And, um, you know, there's a lot of work that's been done by people in our profession looking at, um, you know, how do you how do you increase trust in automated systems? Because if, if people don't trust them, they won't use them, they might even abuse them. So we'll talk about that. Yes, Mike, this is, is great because this leads really nicely into uh, what the critical human factors and ergonomics issues and challenges are that need to be addressed so that these vehicles can um, deliver their anticipated benefits to society. That's a, yeah, that, that is a neat segue. Thank you, Sharon. Um, well, look, there are, there are quite a few um, sort of human factors that um, – are important um, and have been exposed actually in the journey so far towards uh, full automation. And um, I'll talk about some of those. And the first one, in fact, is trust. Um, you know, human trust in automation, you know, we've found, you know, for probably 20 years of research, mainly in aviation, 
is not entirely calibrated. And what I mean by that is that sometimes our trust in, in technology is too low, and we call that uh, distrust, and sometimes it's too high, and we call that overtrust. So people could either distrust the autonomy in their vehicles or they could um, have too much trust in the vehicle. And, uh, and I've actually experienced this in my car that's, that's got a couple of these systems. When I bought uh, my car and discovered it had um, lane-keeping assist in the system in the car, which helps to keep you within your um, your lane if you drift out. It actually, the vehicle takes control of your steering wheel and makes sure you don't steer off the road. Um, I noticed that there were times when this, the car was um, reading the line markings and uh, thought that I was drifting off the road even though I wasn't and was trying to pull me uh, back, uh, back onto the road at a time when I, I wouldn't normally have steered in that way and at first it scared me and um, and I could have gone down a particular path which would have been I uh, I think there's something weird about this automation it doesn't seem to be working properly it scared me I'm not going to use it again so that would be an example of distrust I, I don't like this system so I'm not going to use it again in my case what I did was um go back to the manual and try to understand and look at YouTube videos to, to understand why did it operate this way? And then when I discovered why it operated that way, I could then predict um, whenever I got into a situation where um, the line markings were line, were configured in a way that would upset the automation, I knew what was going to happen and I was prepared for them. So, so even at this sort of level of automation in my car now, um, Issues of trust are an issue. And so other examples of, say, distrust would be that a driver takes back um, control of a vehicle unnecessarily in an emergency or doesn't use the automation at all. And I talked about uh, that latter aspect before. So it could be that the autonomous emergency braking activates. It's doing the right job. It's going to save the person's life, but they don't trust it. So they, they override the, the automation in that case. Um, and they get killed. And then overtrust could occur if, you know, people in an automated vehicle never encounter a system failure. And so they they think that the system's, you know, reliable in all situations and is perfect, but, but it's not. And so in that one situation um, that it fails, they're not sort of prepared for it. So trust is a big issue. Um, another another uh, big issue that's been looked at by people in our profession who are doing um, research is misuse and abuse of automation. And so misuse uh, occurs when there's a lack of understanding of the capabilities and limitations of the automation that can you know, result in drivers um, uh, falsely assuming that the vehicle's more uh, capable than it is. And so an example of that would be, of misuse would be a lot of us in maybe slightly older vehicles would have just a simple ultra ultrasonic um, reverse backing aid or reverse parking aid on their vehicles that, you know, goes beep, 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 beep. And then as you get closer to a brick wall that you're sort of approaching from behind, it goes beep, 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 beep. And then you, then you know that um, you're, you know, about to back into something. Those early generation uh, systems using ultrasonic sensors weren't actually capable of uh, detecting uh, humans that were walking behind the vehicle, for example. 
and there have been quite a few crashes into pedestrians that have occurred because people have falsely assumed that these reverse parking aids um, were actually reverse collision warning systems that could detect, uh, you know, humans and other, um, you know, animals and animals um, behind them. And so, so a lack of understanding of the capabilities and limitations of the system can make people misuse them in, in those sorts of ways. And then, of course, there's abuse. And so if, if people have, you know, in, inappropriately high levels of trust in a system, it can encourage them to, um, to use the system beyond its, its um, uh, what we call operational design domain. So, so there was a recent Tesla crash, for example, where uh, the person, you know, put the uh, Tesla into, I think, what they call autopilot mode. Um, it was driving itself on a freeway and um, it came across, it, it, there was an intersection there that um, the vehicle that came out from the intersection, that the vehicle didn't detect for whatever reason or couldn't. And um, I think the person the person was killed, I'm, I'm pretty sure, in the crash. Um, and it was a, a case where the, you know, the, the person in the vehicle put it into autopilot, assumed it could drive all the way along the highway, but but didn't realise that in that particular crash scenario or, or edge case, they call them, in the, in the industry, uh, the car couldn't cope. So that's what can happen um, when you abuse the system, when you try to use uh, the autonomy in situations it's not designed to be used in. One of the... One of the big issues that human factors uh, researchers are look and designers are looking at at the moment, um, because human human factors and ergonomics um, professionals are actively involved in you know helping engineers and advising engineers in how to design these the human machine interface for these vehicles, and in these level three vehicles that are partially automated, as I said, they can drive around for most of the time, but when they get into a situation where the vehicle sensors uh, can't operate or the algorithms aren't uh, that, that drive them uh, are incapable of continuing to drive the vehicle, um, the vehicle will tell you to take back control. It'll have a message that says something like, please, please take back control of the vehicle. And this, this is a big, this is a big deal. Um, in, in, uh, it's, it's a really hot topic at the moment because um, if if you've got a driver who's put the vehicle, the level three vehicle, um, into uh, you know automatic mode, if we call it that, and they're sitting there, you know, talking on the phone or they're sending a text message or reading a book or doing anything, um, you know, the big challenge is: are they going to be ready to take back control when they need to? And, um, and, and, you know, how do you keep the driver sort of in the loop and ready to intervene if necessary is, is the big challenge here. Um, because if it takes them too long to take back control, or if they take back control um, in a way that's not optimal, the car will crash. And so here, here the, the human factors, uh, engineers, um, you know, need to provide advice on... Um, you know, how much time should you give them? Um, how could how should you design the interface to reorient their attention to the area of the forward road scene that's most critical for them to focus on when they put their eyes back on the road? Um, 
how do you sort of keep them, um, you know, alert while they're driving in auto- automotive mode so that they don't, uh, so that they have the capacity to take back control? So this, what we call transition of control issues, a really big one in, in the human factors area. It's a real challenge at the moment to, to try and get right. Another, another issue is skill loss, because um, we know from research and, and all of the things I'm talking about um, are things that um, have been exposed through research. Human, human factors researchers in particular have exposed all of these things as issues that, that need to be dealt with. Um, and, um, and we're providing guidance, as I'll say later, on, on how to deal with them. But uh, skill loss is a big issue. Gradual loss of skill um, is going to happen if you know drivers haven't been in control of the, the car for a long period of time. If it's a little three car and they've been relying very heavily on the automation, so I'm talking here about partial automation now, not fully autonomous vehicles. And and research has shown that you know by you know being in, out of the control loop for prolonged periods of time when the vehicle's driving itself. It can make you know human drivers less confident in their own performance, and hence um, less likely to continue to want to use the automation. More critically, it degrades their ability to intervene if if they're required to take back control, and and that's a big issue in aviation. And we know that there are many people in our profession who've worked with uh, pilots, developed you know training programs for pilots over many years, in which. Um, Pilots have had to keep going back into simulators because they fly so much in um, on autopilot in, in large commercial aircraft um, to to, to uh, prevent this loss of skill. You know what they're doing when they're hopping into the simulators is um, practicing the skills they need to operate that plane if they have to take back control in certain situations. And there are some situations, for example, in which um, it can be very uh, difficult and impossible for the, a large commercial aircraft to land in bad weather conditions or other conditions, and the pilot has to take that control manually. And so they spend a lot of time uh, practicing, um, you know, landings. So that's an issue. And then education and training is another, you know, big issue. Um, and I've alluded this you know, to this before that. You know, when you're when I'm driving my car, for example, and I've got the level two automation on, um, the the role that I'm, even though I'm in control, what I'm doing is slightly different from what I'm normally doing. Uh, what I'm normally doing is putting my foot on the accelerator, um, keeping a safe distance from the car in front, and and uh, steering the the steering wheel. You know, maintaining my lane position. Now, what I'm doing is slightly different. What I'm doing is I'm looking at the road ahead to see, um, and what I do with level two automation is um, I I kick my hands lightly on the steering wheel um, and let the car drive itself. And so, you know, the skills required now are not to drive the vehicle, but just to let the vehicle drive, but to be constantly checking to see whether the vehicle is performing uh, as it drives itself in the way that. I would be driving and I would expect um, the car to drive when I'm driving. So I suppose what I'm saying is that it's a different skill now. It's a skill of being able to uh, compare what the car's doing with what you would do. And if you think the car's not doing what 
you will do when you feel uncomfortable about that, taking back control. So it's a different set of skills. It's sort of more monitoring what the automation is doing. Um, and so from an education and training point of view, um, there are quite a few um, sort of critical things that we need to convey to people. Um, we need to give them, you know, knowledge of the conditions that are unsuitable for use of the system. Uh, we've got to give them skills in recognising conditions that cause uh, system performance to be uh, ineffective, ineffective or degraded. Um, and we need to um, train in them the behaviours that make them willing to use the system when it's appropriate to do so, so that it has the effect of that we wanted to have, which is to make them safer. Coming up in part three, Professor Reagan will chat about the challenges that the human factors and ergonomics community has in addressing the design of these vehicles. Thanks for joining us at the Human Factors and Ergonomics Hub, brought to you by the Human Factors and Ergonomics Society of Australia, where human-centred design really matters. If you like this podcast, make us your favourite in your podcast app. We look forward to chatting with you next time.